Welcome to The Truth in This Art. I am your host, Rob Lee. And today, I'm super excited to bring on my next guest, a talented jazz artist known for his innovative use of the bass clarinet. And he's one of the few artists worldwide to focus on the bass clarinet as his main instrument in modern jazz with small and large ensembles. Please welcome Tard Marcus. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, good to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Good to good to have you on. And um it's 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 great. Like I feel like, you know, I've seen you on the social media. So I was like, who's this dude? Seen you on the different like websites, like the different art sites as I'm doing my research. I'm like, all right. And then when you we 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 connected, I was like, okay, finally, it's happening. Let's do it. Let's make it happen. So now we're here. And I feel good yeah, about that. Yeah, and I mean that's one of those, I guess also one of those nice highlights of Baltimore, right? Because I had similarly um, come across your work and uh, I think that it was maybe uh, a year and a half ago um, that I first learned about, I, and I forget how I came up, but I was, I had a trip. I was driving out to um, Indiana to buy a, a new bass clarinet. So I, I, I had, you know, it was like a 16 hour drive and I loaded up on podcasts and I, I had a couple of yours on there. And so, yeah, about a year and a half that I've been enjoying uh, the focus and the coverage that you're doing. Well, I, I appreciate that. I mean, that's where those uh, those those thirty downloads came from. So great. <laughs> so you know, as we as we get started in in, in this, I, I want to really open it up in sort of like general sense. Like you know, some people just go with, "Tell me about your work." I'm, I want to learn a bit about you as we kind of start this off. Like, you know, where does your story start, and what were some of your early interests um, growing up? Doesn't have to be creative related, but just your interests. What were you into growing up? And you know, there's some other bullet points after that, but I at least want to start there. Well, uh, I grew up in northern New Jersey, uh, the suburbs. Uh, a lot of folks know the town Teaneck. Uh, I was a little town couple over from there called Hallworth, uh, near the near the uh, George Washington Bridge. So that that part of New Jersey and, um, you know, the suburbs of New York and uh, had a great childhood. Um, my uh, my folks uh, bought the, the house where I grew up my whole life, I think, when I was just a little baby. And so I had the fortune of being, uh, you know, grounded there the, the whole the whole time I grew up. And uh, it wasn't until, you know, maybe seven, eight years ago that um, my after my dad passed, my mom sold the house. But a lot of, lot of memories of playing in the street, playing basketball in the driveway, stickball in the street. Uh, we lived on a dead end street, so there was a little section of woods at the end, and I had my phase where I was into remote controlled cars, and so created the, 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 uh, the ramp, the, the, the trail, the track for the, the cars, and uh, was a creative kid. My, my mom uh, was the one that made sure my brother and I had music introduction. And then from there, played in, in uh, elementary school and high school and band and all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, but, but uh, you know, kind of a good mix of, of all things music related, but also um, athletics. And then, uh, you know, just like other creative stuff, like building things. And, you know, when I came to uh, Baltimore, I went to, to school at Loyola for uh, two and a half years. I was studying political science. But then I started volunteering in what would become my neighborhood, Sandtown, Winchester. Um, every Saturday would come and I work at uh, Sandtown Habitat for Humanity, yeah. and um, so did construction for several years. And then, then moved into the neighborhood, stopped school, moved into the neighborhood, and did construction for several years. So you know, I've got a lot of these different kind of interests and passions that have been part of my life throughout, throughout my uh, my life. 
That's that's great. Um, and I, I saw the Loyola, um, the Loyola detail there. Um, I may or may not have worked at Loyola for a bit. Okay. <laughs> and uh, yeah, because the the day job is is higher ed, and yeah, I mean when. And, and I like the stickball thing. That definitely is a up north, uh, New York, oh, yeah. New Jersey sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. So, how did um, how did you work like with like within music? How did that come about? Like, especially in using an instrument, from what I understand, is less like common these days in um, the jazz world. Yeah, you know, I I played the clarinet as a kid and. Um, Clarinet is an instrument that, as far as jazz goes, uh, was very prominent in, in early um, jazz out of New Orleans and then uh, into the big band area uh, era. Uh, but then it really kind of almost disappeared entirely during the next phases of the music, bebop and post-bop and, uh, you know, saxophone became king. Yeah. Um, and so for me, it was... Um, uh, I, I kind of had a later start in jazz, and um, and when I got to college, it was a first chance to to play in the the school jazz band there, and uh, I met a friend that gave me a record to listen to, and I heard uh, a guy named Eric Dolphy, who was kind of like the godfather of the bass clarinet in jazz, and yeah. um, and so you know I th I said, oh man, this this a, a lot of potential with this instrument, and then I got my hands on one, and so. I've been kind of, I drank that Kool-Aid, so to speak. <laughs> I've been uh, down that, uh, what is it, the red pill? I took the red pill and uh, the Matrix, and, and I've been exploring that reality ever since. Okay, I, li I like it. I like it. Um, you know what I see? I see Bob. I see, because I, I was like, I, I know Eric Dolphy. I was like, Charles Mingus. I was like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's one of my guys. So absolutely, absolutely. And um yeah, I mean, and, and the thing that was significant about Eric Dolphy, he was this, such a, a, a unique individual. He was from the West Coast, and then he came to New York, and like you said, he was working with Charles Mingus and uh, a, a very notable collaboration with John Coltrane. And um, But he was unique. The way he played as a person, he was just like, all accounts, he was just this really sweet, clean-cut guy. And... Um, um, he died tragically when he was young, 36 years old. He had yeah. stayed over in um, uh, Europe on a, after a tour with, I think, with Mingus. And then uh, he had undiagnosed diabetes and he he, he died. Um, so, uh, you know, kind of a tragic early death. But one of these these guys, it was so unique that uh, he's kind of like got a cult status, you know. And yeah. there's like legions of people that <laughs> revere his, his work. And he, there was a festival in Montclair, New Jersey a few years back, an uh, uh, Eric Dolphy festival. And he was just so unique that it's like, like I said, it's almost like this cult. It's this yeah. following of people that is so strong because of this this path that he blazed with the saxophone, with the flute, but so uniquely with the bass clarinet. Thank you. That's, that's, that's wonderful here. So in terms of like, you know, influences in that, that sort of way. What is it about maybe some of the influence you had? You mentioned, you mentioned Dolphy there, some of the influences that you have, some of the people that you're kind of like, wow, this is, because it may not be necessarily someone that maybe plays the same instrument, maybe not even someone that's even a musician. Talk about some of your, your influences and how that um, maybe influences or directs how you go about your music, how you go about your work, your, your style of playing and such. I think that there would be a couple of things, um, influences, some of the, the people that were big influences were John Coltrane and 
his piano player, McCoy Tyner, and uh, another great pianist, Chick Corea. Uh, those were some of those folks from the era that I really ended up falling in love with that were influences. Um, but then you also very significantly have got, for me as this bass clarinet player, this very rare instrument in jazz, uh, you've got people like Dolphy, you've got people like uh, Benny Maupin, who is known for his work using the instrument with Miles Davis. Um, you've got Don Byron, uh, um, who's um, came a kind of a, a next generation that really introduced the, the clarinet and bass clarinet into a little more of a, a modern straight ahead approach in jazz. And so guys like them are, are really significant to me. Um, it's kind of being trailblazers and, and yeah. sort of showing, Hey, it's possible. You know, like anytime you don't see uh, a certain representation, right. And, and, and then you see people that are doing it, it shows you, Hey, there's stuff that can be done and there's a kinship with that. And there's a solidarity with that. And so those, uh, those guys, some of them that are not, uh, stylistic influences on me mm -hmm. are still very important because they showed me, hey, this was possible. And they introduced me to stuff that would become my path that I would explore and take on my own my own direction with the instrument. I like that. I like that a lot. And um, that kind of kind of brings me to to this in terms of like how you went about like learning sort of the craft learning the the skills and the, t the and, and, and learning to play ultimately how do, how was that um because i think a lot of times there isn't the freshest of roadmaps sometimes or a roadmap at all and kind of what i do and it's just you're figuring it out you're you're being self-taught I, I don't really re regard myself as being self-taught because it's kind of like can you talk to a person? <laughs> but uh, talk up, talk about that. Some of the training and some of the uh, the, the education that went into you and your work. Yeah, and I think that that's um, it's interesting here. You talk about your approach in, in interviewing and podcasting and and publishing because it, it makes me think about some of the similarities I would say I feel in my work. Uh, so I'm self-taught when it comes to jazz. You know, I grew up ha uh, playing clarinet, as I said, in, in school, and, and I had the, I had lessons, so I learned to uh, re uh, read music and, um, and play in ensembles, and that was a great foundation for me. But when it came to jazz, um, I taught myself theory and harmony yeah. and composition and uh, improvisation. Uh, really kind of the way that it was done the old school way, which was listening to records, listening, learning, studying. Um, oftentimes you, we call it in, in music, we call it transcribing. You know, you learn the solo and you either you learn it by ear or you learn a few notes, hear a few notes at a time and write them down. Uh, and that way you build up that vocabulary. Uh, and so that was the way that I did it. And it's, it's kind of interesting because it, it came on the cusp of when jazz was really transitioning more into academia yeah. um, and, and more the norm that people would go to college for jazz. And this is at a similar time that, you know, a lot of venues that traditionally, a lot of the neighborhood places that would have jazz um, throughout, the, throughout the week or at least on the weekends, neighborhood kind of smaller spots were disappearing. And, um, and so... I feel fortunate I've had that kind of old school experience. And, you know, there's a certain pride that I that I taught myself a lot of, of what I've learned. Um, it's interesting now, you know, with stuff is so much in, in schools, uh, as a lot of those older places and venues don't exist. 
um, things have changed radically. And, um, and so now there's, there's a degree to which um, being in school is not only, I think, a learning opportunity, but it's also then a networking mm-hmm. uh, setting, you know, because um, you just don't have the same prevalence of touring bands and a chance with band leaders to apprentice with an established band leader, right? Um, so, uh, so things have changed. Things have changed. That's it's interesting because, like, macroly speaking, like jazz has felt is has always been looked at as um, at least for, at least from my vantage point, just kind of very interesting and something that I felt may have been valued weirdly as far as like how, like. We, we don't want you to go into jazz. That's, it's, it's not nothing in here. It's got all of this other stuff that goes along with it. And then seeing that it is definitely something that people speak about more. But I feel like there's like what maybe three places that I'm aware of and maybe my own ignorance that, hey, I can go to and hear music more than, you know, once for some very special occasion. And I don't think that that's always been that way. I feel like, you know, there was always places to kind of pick up a gig and and do work and be around musicians. And, you know, as I was like articulating to you before we got started, I've been trying to put together a series of interviews, you know, because I recognize my own sort of shortcomings. And I think the way that again, macroly speaking, it was presented to me was sort of smooth jazz. No, no, no. I need, I need something that bops. I need something that hits you over the head. That's the type of stuff that I'm into. And I think if that was presented to me initially and then moved into it, I'm, I could be a musician now. <laughs> I could have dove into it to that degree. And what is what is your take on the jazz music in, in Baltimore as a person that is a musician? Like, what is your take on it here in terms of like getting gigs in terms of how it's treated and how it's appreciated just that scene overall well it's an interesting time for jazz in baltimore because um in a lot of ways the scene is the strongest that it's been in a long time yeah and uh, i remember back uh, late 90s when i was getting into the music and and um you know was Full time in Baltimore, and uh, there was a place over by Morgan with uh, in the Northwood Shopping Plaza that just recently, you know, has been completely redone. Yeah. Uh, but there was a place called the New Haven Lounge. I know New Haven Lounge. <laughs> and uh, you know, the Haven had music on the weekends. And uh, back in the day, there had been national names. The, the national, the big name guys, they they all knew the Haven because they had come up through and played it. Yeah. Uh, even some recordings there, but. Um, you know, by the late 90s, like 2000s, that was one of the few places that regularly was doing the music. And if you didn't like what was playing at the Haven, well, you kind of, if you were lucky, there was a show going on at the Caton Castle over on the, the west side. Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise, you had to go down to D.C. to catch something mm-hmm. or take the long uh, trip up to New York. And um, and so now we actually we've got a we've got a few more venues, yeah. um, not a ton of venues, but we've got a lot of musicians that are here. Yeah. So yeah. more and more people are moving to Baltimore, and so the scene is very rich with really accomplished musicians. Um, and then between us and DC, which really for us in the area is like one big, it's just one big working area. Um, you know, you you can do okay as as a professional working musician yeah. uh, in the area between um, the different venues and 
and you know a lot of musicians teach of course and and then do private party gigs so um the days of of new york being the ultra mecca uh are kind of changed um because even in new york um and this is before the pandemic you know you had fewer yeah. places and it's um and, and again these the schools are kicking out so many people uh on uh, graduating with jazz degrees and it's just is not the the infrastructure to support that much work for the yeah. number of musicians so um you know you really have to be creative a lot of times kind of doing your own thing sometimes having some other work that subsidizes you so you can do your art so you can can uh, continue to sustain um but that's that's what i would say is kind of like the 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 mix of the scene for jazz in, in baltimore right now that 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 helps because um yeah in, in listening to it like you know i've had and, and and i think a piece of you know what i was getting at earlier may it may have been attributed to the pandemic when, when this idea first presented itself and popped in my head and now it's like being more dipped into the scene um and knowing a few more names um it's like oh okay cool this person does that great or even um having that sort of uh dc to baltimore connection i remember speaking with elijah baldad and uh the jogo project and i remember reaching out to the folks down there in dc and they weren't aware of it you know 202 creates it was like who is that what is that and i was like that is one of your own people can we can yeah. we sort this out and yeah. you know last you know uh in in september I helped organize a, a show, um, actually a Jogo project show at Keystone. And oh, wow. yeah, try, just trying to make, cause it's, you know, for me, it's it's important. And I don't wanna see it as, this is a documentary thing. Like, no, no, this should be a thing that's, that's living and out there and accessible in a way. So whenever the opportunity presents itself, um, my partner has a family in dc so we did a jazz night down there and some some clothes like this is fire this is great and then we returned the favor in you know in december of uh, having them come up and go to keystone with us you know for um for jogo doing their uh, sort of christmas show and it was kind of like this sort of like fire exchange of community in a very condensed way and jazz being a big part of it and that sort of music being yeah, a big part of it and i think that it's it's great hearing you talk about that because i think that there's a parallel between that and even what i've heard you talk about with your podcast and that you know this this it is this interesting time where there's tremendous power and ability for us to kind of diy things right mm -hmm. and um 15 20 30 years ago that was not the reality the tech wasn't there yeah. the access wasn't there you had to go through the gatekeepers uh through different channels existing uh networks and those had value now don't get me wrong there was there's plus and minuses right yeah. um but um but now kind of either because of the availability of different tech and 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 uh yeah options for us and the necessity we kind of have to kind of grind and do these things and make our own scenes and our own situations much of the time yeah um which is exhausting but it's also you know it, it it does allow us to create some some really interesting content and stuff and events yeah, yeah. And, and i'm always like looking for where's the interesting stuff happening and 
you know, I, I turned to Tomo's pitch man when I was putting out there the uh, the proposal to to get the funding and all of that. I was like, yeah, it's this with that man. It's got to happen. It's a fusion, <laughs> and just really going off on it. And I think it's I think it's very important because I've really been playing with this this idea of how we treat culture in in a sort of macro sense, and. I think, you know, as we move further and further ahead in time, the the annals of history, they become eroded. And that's where I was kind of coming from with this idea of I don't want to hear about hear about it in, you know, in a documentary sort of way, because the people who lived it and knowing who are those kind of holders of that culture and that history, they, yeah. they kind of die out. And then, as we know, things get reframed from maybe a smaller perspective. Yeah. And. You know, I think it's a preservation thing that that happens, but you know, also like, what's what's that next sort of generation that's bringing things along? Yeah, yeah, and I think it's it's huge because it's um, it's it's covering the scene, it's giving people their acknowledgement and respect while they're still with us, giving them their flowers. Uh, yeah, yeah, and I, I think that that's that's important. There's a, a colleague of mine, a wonderful saxophone player down in D.C. named Antonio Parker, and he um, he's been doing. He calls it Conversations in Jazz, and he does it as a YouTube series. And he interviews all these different musicians from the, mainly the D.C. area. But, it, you know, it's the same thing that, um, you know, we got to capture a lot of this, these interviews, these conversations, especially with some of our elders, while there's still time. And there's one real kind of poignant uh, interview he did with uh, a drummer uh, who was a, a staple of the DC scene for many years, who then passed away during the pandemic from COVID. And so, you know, suddenly, you know, here the fact that he did this interview, man, it took on this even heightened uh, significance and relevance and historical uh, uh, role. Yeah, yeah. I mean, really being able to capture that stuff um, and, you know, even looking at like here, you know, in Baltimore, where, you know, it's the city is changing rapidly. I look back at some of those early interviews, not even, you know, three, four or four years ago, have you, you know, where some of that stuff, does some of those places don't exist anymore, you know, and some of those people aren't here anymore, don't live here physically anymore. And their work has grown in such a way. So it's like really capturing it, archiving that, and then taking it to sort of that, where are we at now? How have things changed now? And, you know, sometimes you look at, you know, a city that is is developing and is growing in a way, and what are these new things that are coming in? And where does culture, whether it's arts, whether it's performance, because I think the notion of people going out to a place, and that's the thing that really is, I think, in danger at times, you know, there's a way of capturing it, whether it's through streaming and so on, like capturing a performance, but it's something about being there, you know, yeah. and that's the thing that I, I really want to find a way to kind of keep that. And I think, you know, there's limited space sometimes of, all right, we can only have 50 people here tonight because, you know, COVID and all of that. Then let's have a secondary venue, let's have a tertiary venue and so on to kind of keep that out there, keep that spirit out there. So. I want to, and I and I think you touched on this, but I want to dive back into it. Um, I always ask about like life experiences that kind of create help shape your creative sensibility. Like, you know, I, I I keep thinking about like, and one was recent for me. Um, I did this talk, uh, Creative Mornings talk about this this concept of truth. And I got really personal in it, and rarely I do that. Usually, I'm the person asking the questions. I got all the questions. You need to have the answers. But being on that side of it, of really being vulnerable and sharing, I was like, oh, I understand maybe having a, a, a further appreciation of maybe what the guest encounters when they're coming on and sharing their story. 
and that's helped shape my creative sensibility. What is that for you? Like what helps, like, is there an experience that comes uh, come to mind that helps shape your creative sensibility? I would say uh, maybe a couple aspects of where my life have just been wrapped up with the resulting art that I've made. One would be by nature of me being Egyptian. Um, that has really impacted my work and creativity over the past decade plus. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, my dad, he immigrated from Egypt and um, married my mom in, in the States. And um, when I was in seventh grade, that was the first time that we as a family went back. My dad hadn't gone back in 27 years. Um, and uh, and so we went as a family and, uh, you know, all the adults were socializing, me and my other little cousins. We were running the streets of Cairo. And so I had these, you know, these amazing experiences uh, of that. And then, um, you know, just trips over the years um, in Cairo, Alexandria, and some of the smaller little uh, towns we would pass through by train. Uh, and then even just uh, the last few years of, uh, as, a, as an adult making return trips, performing there yeah. and, um, and taking my wife for the first time. And so for me, the significance of that is that as, um, you know, growing up, in New Jersey without a Middle Eastern, without an Egyptian community around, at a certain point in adulthood, I, I started to want to explore more of my culture and, and heritage through music. And I asked my dad for some some records and he had some that he had brought with him when he immigrated. And, and that, I just, I fell in love with that music. And so I've done a lot of incorporating that. And then the, the, the two musics, jazz and Middle Eastern music, they don't naturally go together. Yeah. They're very different. And so it took a lot of, it was like a puzzle. I was trying to figure out how can I make this work and, and get them to fuse them together. So, so that's been a big example yeah. of, of that kind of impact of stuff on my art. And then maybe the other one of, of note of, of recent years is uh, I live in West Baltimore in the Sandtown Winchester community, right along Pennsylvania Avenue. And um, for folks that don't know, you know, our neighborhood, uh, Santan, Winchester and Upton right next to each other. And that was like the Harlem of, of Baltimore for, yeah. for decades, for generations. And uh, and so I moved into the neighborhood in uh, 97 and um, and I've been here. Um, this is a, a resident and then also part of a community nonprofit that I'm uh, one of the co-founders of. And so um, just my experiences learning, living in my neighborhood. And then uh, I kind of culminated in 2015 after the death of Freddie Gray. Yeah. And, um, you know, as we do as artists, oftentimes we kind of process our surroundings into our art. And so um, that began kind of a, a, what became an album a couple of years later called On These Streets, A Baltimore Story. And it was kind of my way as a musician to a musical portrait of my neighborhood here in West Baltimore. Um, a lot of the challenges certainly that people know about and harp on, and but also a lot of the positives that people don't know when they're just stuck on the negative stereotypes. So, so that's another example where different kind of influences and, and settings and circumstances have, have impacted my, my music and, and my artistry. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, Talk about, if you will, um, your 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 process, your creative create, creative process, like the you know conception to sort of completion. Like, what are those you know 
major like milestones within that process within that continuum um for me the the more challenging part in in doing this and ultimately putting this together this is somewhere in the midpoint actually doing the interview right but in the beginning of it getting getting the you know good information to come up with questions that i think are useful and pertinent you know don't want to just ask the same questions like here are the five questions that i ask everybody there's some you know repetition obviously but i think how one asks it you maybe get to get a different response from a person and then you know towards the end of it is actually when it goes out or when it's ready in post-production and all of that, but there's still more things that go in it. Like, all right, what's the graphic going to look like? When I'm going to post it, who am I going to share it with? And, you know, should I send it to some blog? Should I put it in a newsletter? All of these like post things. And that's that full sort of process. Um, so for you, like, what does your process look like um, overall? Like any part of, because I'm sure it's multifaceted, but, you know, tell us about like your part of your creative process and like what goes into it. It's it's a lot. It's a lot. It's <laughs> multi-phase, multi-steps. It's exhausting. So, um, on the on the artsy um, fun side of it is just like you know loving music and um, practicing and learning, or uh, you know different ideas that I apply in my improvisation. Um, something that I've been doing. Uh, well, let's see a few things that during the the pandemic I focused on was uh, incorporating Middle Eastern um, sounds into my improvisation. I'd already been doing it with the compositions, mm-hmm. but doing that with my improvisation. And then, um, um, you know, there's always some, di- I got a couple different concepts that I've been working on and incorporating into my playing. Um, you know, I, I remember years ago, uh, there was a, a great uh, saxophonist named Youssef Latif, and he was talking about John Coltrane, and he talked about, Coltrane and it's like how he would he, he was this relentless practicer and he said John was like a cup and he would always be putting these different pieces of information into the cup into the cup just to the point that it was overflowing and uh, so I like that you know that's on the fun side of exploring and being creative and figuring out stuff you want to incorporate as a, an improviser that's part of the process also composition you know yeah. i sit down at the piano uh, i'm usually my composition comes from different things that i am inspired by uh for me going out and hearing other people is huge um because i get inspiration from hearing other people and i might hear yeah. somebody do something in their playing or a composition i like oh I like that. I, I could do something with that. And then I'll kind of go home and then jot down that little idea and I'll sit at the piano and, um, and come up with a composition or maybe a little fragment. And then maybe another fragment a, a, a month later and then a couple months later. And then a lot of times I'll knit those together. So I have almost like this collage of a, a composition that came from these different ideas that I, that I quilted together. Um, but separate from that, then there's all the the unsexy side of stuff like reaching out to venues, emails after emails, after emails, after calls, after emails, after calls, mm-hmm. trying to get dates. And then, oh, you got the date. Now you got to promote it and you got to, you know, get line up the musicians and you got to work on their travel and booking, setting up the hotels and then, you know, like promoting it. And, um, you know, it's just exhausting. It's, and, and it's the kind of stuff that as a musician, as a band leader, um, you're doing that and then you're like, oh wait, we got this show in, in, in a week. And <laughs> I like haven't hardly touched my horn this week because yeah. I'm so busy dealing with this other stuff. 
so that's uh, that's kind of some of the stuff, the process. And then, of course, when you got uh, if you got a new record out, you, you're also then trying to spread the word about that. Oh, and then, of course, all this social media stuff. Now that, <laughs> we got to be tending to right. This stuff is crazy. And so it's like all this stuff back to what we were saying earlier. It's great that we have this available to us. It gives mm-hmm. us the power of determining our own destiny to a certain degree. But it's a lot of time. Yeah, and, and there's only so much of us to split, you know. So, it's uh, it's it's tricky. It's it's challenging. Yeah, um, I've been. So if you don't love it, if you don't love this, what like if you don't love podcasting, if you don't love making music, man, you know, <laughs> do something else. Sit in the couch, watch some Star Trek, because you know you're gonna waste <laughs> a lot of time. Yeah, I mean, I've 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 seen it on you know trying to get the you know that project I was telling you about organized like at Keystone, and that was a a long process to get that sorted out and squared away, and because you know for me I'm always trying to extend and and, and pick up new things versus you know I'm just I don't want to be a stale podcaster I I don't want to just I am one trick pony I don't want to just do that so I'm always tweaking and looking for ways to refine and, and, and grow and you know I do these movie nights and like you said just in doing that I'm, I'm booking the venue I'm in bringing the guests on finding out what they need making sure everything is set getting the movie getting the funding um and at times I'll forget like oh right and, and while doing the podcast schedule and my other obligations oh yeah. snap I needed to review this movie and prepare to, since I'm hosting this night <laughs> and that's that just falls to the wayside it's like you're you're ensuring that everything needs to get done for every other part of it and then somehow you don't want to come off as the weak link within it. Like you said, like, I haven't touched my horn in a while. What's going on here? Yeah, it requires planning, organization, you know, multitasking. It's it's intense. Yeah. So I got, um, I think, three more real questions. One has a lot of points to it, but I want to go with this one. Um this one, I try to try to be brief in it, um, at least more so for me because I talk a lot. Uh, can you describe some of the notable artists that you've worked with, and what was like the nature of the collaboration? Like, was it, you know, we did some writing together, we did a few sessions together, we we did a show together, we played together. Tell me about some of the notable people that come to mind for you. Uh, yeah, it varies, you know. Um, as far as some, some notable folks, uh, I. Uh, I'm very happy that I've had the chance to do some work over recent years with a a saxophonist named Gary Bartz, who is a native Baltimorean, um, actually from, grew up in the Sandtown Winchester community, so it's a a real special aspect for me. But, uh, you know, before I knew any of that, I came to his playing because I heard his music, his playing. I heard him playing with McCoy Tyner, one of the great jazz pianists uh, of all time, one of the great pianists of all time, and uh, fell in love with his playing, his albums. And then when I learned that he was from Baltimore, that was just like a, a special kinship. Uh, and so having a chance to, you know, get to, to talk with him and and, uh, and then to do some playing over the years, for me, that was very special. It's like when, you know, you meet your, your heroes and, and then get to, to become uh, peers and, and make music together. So that was very special. You know, um, uh, another example is a, a guy I mentioned earlier, Benny Maupin, yeah. someone that um, is a saxophonist and uh, flautist, composer, but also bass clarinetist and very famous for his work with Miles Davis. Uh, Miles Davis has an album called Bitches Brew from the late 60s. It was a very popular fusion album. Um, and so, um, 
you know, back in 2012, I had reached out to Benny Maupin and he came to Baltimore uh, and was a guest with my jazz orchestra and we did a concert. And, um, you know, we had a little conversation leading up to that with logistics and everything, but that was the only date we did. I, I reached out to him a few times afterwards and um, unfortunately it didn't work out um, to get him on some others. So, you know, it was just that one time, but a very special memory and experience for me. And, uh, you know, another guy that I would think of is, is Don Byron, who is the other person I mentioned that was a real kind of trailblazer on the clarinet and for us to, to get to know each other over the years. And then we've done a bunch of touring together, a lot of performances together and, uh, you know, having that kinship that's, that's special. So those are, those are a few folks that, that come to mind offhand and, you know, a lot of other wonderful musicians and some big name folks that I've had the chance to get to know. And um, it's nice to get to, to know folks as a peer and you see people that are just beautiful and the sweetest people, you know, and then, you, you know, some folks that kind of let you down with, with, uh, you know, when you start to be around them a little bit, but uh, I, I, I love it all, you know, cause this is, just seeing all these different folks, hearing their stories, especially the elders, yeah. uh, meeting new people. There's a, a, a clarinetist that I just worked with for the first time this year who's uh, a bit younger than I am up in Canada, but an amazing uh, clarinetist named Virginia McDonald, and, and we did some playing together. So hopefully that'll be a new relationship where we make music for years to come. And I love that. You know, being a band leader um, – and on an unusual instrument, I don't have as many calls for sideman work. Mm. So when I get the chance through my own work as a band leader or rare sideman opportunities to work with other folks, it's just a kinship there. It's it's a yeah. it's community building, and it's it's really meaningful to me. That's that's wonderful. I, I yeah, I I love the the, the when those opportunities present themselves. Like now. I, hey, I can work with someone, do some consulting to help with some storytelling, or it may be something that's slightly different than what I normally do. It's like, oh yeah, you can you can run a show, and it's like, oh, I'm hosting a thing and moderating a panel. I wasn't expecting that, and being able to chat with people who I joke about it all the time, who are much more talented than me. I might mean that, but much more talented than me, and um, being able to to be up there and and have a conversation and, and having them answer my questions. You know, having the time and the consideration to answer my questions and just seeing people it, it normalizes and it personalizes and um yeah it's, it's community at the end of the day to me mm-hmm. so i this, this is a question in, that i'm really 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 interested in uh you, you touched on being able to you know um to to, to play in, in egypt and you played all around you know here in different parts of the u.s and you know internationally obviously what is it like performing in law in front of large audiences and smaller audience, more more intimate audiences? What is what is that feeling that that you have in performing or have you like? How does that feel like? I have terrible stage fright at times, so if someone asks me, it's like ah, it feels like indigestion. That's what it feels like <laughs> for you. What, what does it feel like, regardless of the size of the audience? And maybe it's a difference there, but what does it feel like performing in front of a large audience or in front of like a smaller, more intimate audience? Uh, I would say that more of my work has been in front of medium and smaller size audiences just because of the, a lot of the venues that I play in. Um, you know, and then there are some of my colleagues that are out in the road jazz wise that are playing larger kind of stadium stuff. Um, uh, I've done, I haven't done a ton of that. Um, and I, I actually kind of like the smaller setting venues, both acoustically, 
uh, for jazz. That's where it really is heard best and, and I feel performed best. Um, but also there's an intimacy, I think, that you get from those settings. And, you know, when we say medium, it'd be like two, 300, 400 seat venue, but yeah. still compared to like a, I've got colleagues that are out there doing these stadium things and it's like a different kind of thing. <laughs> Uh, and, and I think the advantage of when you're in a, uh, whether it's a club or a smaller concert hall, is that there's the chance to have a real intimacy and connection with your audience. Yeah. And if we do our job well as musicians, presenting engaging music um, that shape well, that's con con uh, composed and constructed well, and then solos that tell a story, you know, what what happens is that you start forming this connection with the audience and they're really engaged. And um, oftentimes you hear it after a solo and, and people will, will really just, there'll be that release of the applause and, 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 and positivity. And, and it's like, it becomes this transcendent experience yeah. um, to me, which really makes me think about how in a lot of cultures, um, musicians are, have almost like a more of a spiritual kind of role. And when I, when I experience that, I am reminded why, because it really is this transcendental type experience where you as the musician and the audience, you are all elevated together. Yeah. And it's this, it's amazing. It's just, it, it, it's that it, whenever I'm in that grind of feeling frustrated uh, or struggling, um, I remember those moments and that's what keeps me going as far as grinding through the the slog of the the not fun part of music making, because it's getting back to that that is just incredible and powerful. I that, that made me think of this. Uh, I went to this venue. I think I think it was Nine Thirty Club, maybe, and it's in DC. So um, one of my one of my favorite acts, um, Tori Wah, was uh, playing. He was doing a track from his new album that was coming out at the time, and he played one of my favorite songs from uh, i think it's i think it's called rose quartz um sometimes you just it's like i know the melody but may forget the title and i had this sense that i felt like i was levitating i was like mm -hmm. this is this is amazing and yeah. every time i listen to that song subsequently i feel like i'm back in that moment you know i've heard, listened to it before listened to it after but i go back to that moment yeah and uh, yeah, definitely, I just felt like we were in this experience together. It was a really great like experience. And I feel like that's one of the powers of, of music and powers of live music specifically. Yeah, definitely. And, and that, I mean, in this day and age where everybody, you know, is listening to stuff on their cell phones and everything. Oh, man, you know, it's great that, <laughs> that we have that tech that, you know, stuff is so accessible. But you don't get that experience from watching somebody on your cell phone. You get that from being live in person mm -hmm. and having that connection, and there's a there's an energy that is exchanged, and there's that special marker moment, like you talking about that. You hear that song now, and your mind goes back to that moment where you were there at nine thirty club experiencing that. Yeah, and that's that's seared in your brain. I um had this had this this observation earlier. I was listening to this uh this audio book and. The uh, a segment about um, the digital and analog and all of this stuff, and 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 it presented me with a question: of How do we decide in this sort of ever growing digital like situation that we're in? 
you know, your Spotify, you have less things. Everything is in the cloud. Everything is digital. You have less ownership of these items, right? Um, or a, a copy of said item. And I don't, I don't, I don't know what to really do with that. Like, I felt like if I'm going out to buy someone's record, there's is more value in that. But if I can just easily get it and there was no work put into it other than signing up for it and having this, it's like, it's, it's, it's passive, um, it's passive pirating in some ways. And, you know, it's not to knock it, but at the same time, that's, that's really what it is. And I look at what physical media I have is mostly DVDs. I'm definitely a movie person, but I have vinyl. I don't really have CDs anymore, but I, I have vinyl and, I'm looking at this Tory Y album right now. So there you go. Yeah. I mean, look, you know, back to just like the pros and cons of this technical age that we're in. It's, it's tough times being a musician because you, you know, trying to sell your albums now is extremely tough. I mean, the whole collapse of the record industry, as far as the, disappearance of music stores right with the internet now everything's on internet right well that's cool but if you're a musician try you put all this money and time into making an album and um and then you, you're trying to sell it and make your money back well people don't have cd players anymore right mm -hmm. um and and you know it just and if folks will go to the internet and everything and it, it's tough it's tough and it's great that you know it helps you get the word out there but it's challenging. And, you know, and then people uh, will love to record stuff with their cell phone. And I, you know, I feel conflicted about this. Like I'll, I'll be at my performances. I've tried to think about how can I tactfully do this? And I feel like I got a good approach. I'll say, all right, folks. So we, oh, I'm glad you enjoyed this last song. I, I seen a lot of people got their cell phones out that tells me you're digging it. You're loving what you're seeing. You want to capture it. But look, we spent a lot of money recording this and you can get this <laughs> professionally recorded version of this song. It's going to make your cell phone version of it now look like nothing. So yeah. please buy our album. <laughs> I, I do like being able to repurpose like kind of like old and defeated tech and, you know, but I, and I think it's experiences. It's, it's how do you add some degree of exclusivity to it? And because I'm doing an audio medium and that's obviously it's out there through many of these platforms and that's how it gets out there. Like if yeah. this was, I don't know if this turns into a comedy record. I don't know what it turns into. If it, you know, if we went back to like everything was vinyl, everything's tapes. Um, it would probably be something on the radio, I suppose. But yeah, I kind of want to dip back into that. Like there's something that's still there. That still there's a heartbeat there for sort of this quote, quote unquote dead tech. Like maybe podcasts on vinyl, maybe podcasts on like a cassette tape, but something that has the exclusivity to it of I did this really cool interview with this person and we're releasing this only on vinyl. That's yeah. literally where it's going. And I, I don't know, but I definitely have seen more and more people performing as a response. It's like, all right, everybody, we're going to do this song. Take out your cameras, do your thing real quick. But once we start playing, please put those things away by our record. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So this is the last real question I got for you, and it's more of an invitation, really. Um, tell us about um, intersection of change. I want to. I read a bit about that, and I want to, you know, give you the floor for that. Well, intersection of change is the other half of my life. Um, music being one half, and then intersection of change is our community nonprofit in West Baltimore, here in our Sandtown, Winchester, and up to communities right on Pennsylvania Avenue, and we're very much focused on. 
uh, addressing poverty-related challenges in our neighborhood. And uh, we've got three different programs that we run. The first one we started in 2000 is Martha's Place, and that's our recovery program for women overcoming substance abuse and homelessness. And there weren't places in our neighborhood for women in recovery, and that's where we moved to respond to that need. And then in 2008, we started a second program that's called Jubilee Arts, and it does all types of different art classes, ceramics, visual arts, dance, you name it. We had just added some recent classes in candle making, you know, uh, uh, youth business, entrepreneurial classes, mural making. Uh, and so that really is very arts focused for our community and providing uh, community building and outlet and expression for our community residents. And then the third program is called Strength to Love 2, and that uses an acre and a half farm in our community on the west end of our neighborhood to address the food apartheid issue, make sure we can try to have tackle away at that food access issue, uh, but also do workforce development. And so that is the work. Those are the three programs that we do that are part of the overall community development work that we're doing. Uh, we're very unique, I think, in that we are very much a community-based organization. Yeah. You hear that term a lot, but in our case, uh, it's very, very authentic. Two of our uh, other founders, Elder C.W. Harris and Amelia Harris, are lifelong community residents of the neighborhood. And so when I moved into the neighborhood, it was largely in meeting them and, and being um, mentored by them that I learned about our community and uh, the three of us worked together. And we've over the years and brought a lot of staff on and uh, been fighting for our neighborhood. So. So that that's the work we're doing. That's what we're doing. It's great to hear. And uh, thank you for that, because, uh, yeah, I think a lot of times we only have so many hours, especially when we're going after what we're doing creatively. But I think a lot of times um, people aren't of the community and doing work for the community that they're in. So bravo to you for the work that you're doing. Um, so now it's time to get into the rapid fire. That's a fire. <laughs> um, on. I've been adding questions. Um, one is ridiculous. Um, well, most of them are ridiculous, but just, you know, keep in mind, brevity is key here. Don't overthink them. Um, I'm going to start off with a really a softball for you. In terms of um, when you're most productive, what you enjoy most, um, when you uh, are at your peak, is it morning or night? You're a morning person or a night person? Man, it's interesting. So I, I've almost all my life been a night owl. My dad uh, was the ultimate night owl. I must have inherited that from him. And, uh, you know, I th 10 o'clock on and 2 a.m., that's, you know, that's me. That's my time. Uh, and then the pandemic came and there was no gigs to go to. And suddenly, I, got, I guess I've got a year, a year and a half in, and I started like going to bed earlier, and I haven't recovered, man. And it's like it's fairly rare that I'm, I'm that same late night schedule. I had a gig in Toronto uh, this summer, and the gig went. It was Friday, Saturday, and each night it went to two a.m. And I said, man, what kind of mess is this? Who's who's out here? Like I, 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 two a.m. Man, I don't go to bed. So uh, so I'm changing a little bit. <laughs> I hear you. I was um, a night owl, but I'm changing. Yeah, that, kind of the same thing for me. Um, and uh, I find that I put on a TV show at times, and you know, I, I I've been on uh, this kick of revisiting the X Files, and oh. it just puts me to sleep. Like I'll get through like one episode, I get to that second one, I'm yeah. done. Yeah. And I, I I gotta find something. I'll wake up, 
just briefly enough to turn off the TV and go to sleep because sometimes it gets a little it gets a little reckless in the uh, the dot. It's like why are, why is there so much screaming? Oh, I'm still watching X Files. I hear you, man. I I uh, I set a new record the other night. I fell asleep <clears> on a couch after I, I I was watching some Star Trek and I said, well, let me hit the pause button because I'm definitely drowsing off. I woke up. It was six a.m. <laughs> I had never been that late, and so I got up to the bed. My wife said, "What time is it? Six o'clock." So, yeah. So I'd be remiss if I don't go into this one then. Uh, so, which Star Trek? The old school OG Star Trek, uh, <laughs> Next Generation, Voyager, other Deep Space Nine. What is your Star Trek of choice? I grew up on Star Trek: The Next Generation and the movies of the original series. Yeah. Um, and then during the pandemic, I had never watched Voyager. I had never watched Deep Space Nine. I never watched Enterprise. So that was my mental health treatment uh, for myself, watching those during the pandemic. And uh, and so, you know, I, I say I love them all. Um, the new ones, it's been great seeing new series being made. Man, a lot of them, oh, they're pretty rough. It's like lower decks. You know, <laughs> dramatic and, you know, people and their issues. And like, can't we go back to Spock and, you know, logic is king? So, um, but yeah, I can't, I can't not watch. I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an addict. I'm a Star Trek addict. I dig it. I dig it. So, this, this next question you're going to like as well, probably. Um, because there's always this sort of competition between Star Trek and Star Wars. So if this was dumped in your hand right now, which one do you take? Phaser or lightsaber? Oh, man. You know, I got to I gotta say, sit my phaser on stun because I'm a Trekkie. But... <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> but but I'll admit, you know, look, I, I love I love all things sci-fi. And so I have watched uh, all of this stuff and Disney is getting their money out of me because, you know, they're making these all these additional series and 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 I can't not watch these things. You know, Mr. Sci-Fi, I love her. So they got me. You I know. hear you. Every 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 place in Star Trek, I mean Star Wars rather, is a desert. It's <laughs> every place is a desert. It's like, oh, we're in Andor. Oh, there's sand again. Huh? Isn't that something? Oh, we're gonna be one. Yep, more sand. Huh? All right. Yep. yep. Uh so I got like I got three more for you. Um let's see. Um what's the what's what's your favorite country you visited um like in the last, let's say, few years? Always live vicariously through people when they travel. So you've you've traveled to I've heard you mention Toronto, I heard you mention Egypt. Um uh so what's been the the best place that you've traveled, your favorite place that you've traveled in the last few years? I'm gonna stick with Egypt. For me, I mean obviously I have that connection because I still have family there. Um and there's an affinity from having made trips so many times over the years. But each time I go back, you know, when I land in the airport, there's something about that desert air that I just I, I feel that, I smell that, and it's like like you were saying earlier, you, you know, like a memory of being at that show that is seared in your brain, right? Mm -hmm. And for me, it's like I, I land and then suddenly I have that memory back to like the first time I was there as a kid. And it's very special. And so, um, yeah, I, I haven't gotten tired of going back to Egypt yet. You make, you're making me want to visit, you know, with my unofficial, half, half official unofficial heritage. You make me want to visit. I just got to get my beard longer. And uh, I'll just just pull up. I just pull up. When you're ready to do it, let me know, and and I'm gonna hook you up so you can have a good experience. That's a bet. So with it, you know, that brings me to. I always ask food questions, as, as you as you probably know at this point. Yep. So, what are? Because I, I like people. Like I'm a I'm a somewhat adventurous eater. Or have y'all tried different things? What are three sort of entry level Middle Eastern foods you would suggest someone try? 
Like people were like, I don't eat this, I don't eat that, it's only this. I was like, mm, this is good, you should try it. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I, I will say that I love uh, hummus, mm -hmm. but hummus is actually Lebanese, so I can't say that. Um, but I would say that uh, three Egyptian dishes, one is called koshari, and it's kind of... Um, uh, it's uh, it's a lot of different things kind of mixed all in together. Very tasty. Um, there is um, some of the kebabs are pretty delicious. I've got some some wonderful memories of, of that. And then there's a soup. It's called malahia, malahia, and um, it's kind of this very green uh, soup. And uh, and depending on who makes it, it's either great or it's terrible. <laughs> so those are those are a few Egyptian dishes that I would. Uh, that I would offer. I'm, I'm looking at it now. I was like, that is very green. <laughs> Dude, this is the last one I got for you. Um, so I, you do, I think you're, you were describing something that I do, you know, that describing something that you were doing today that I do as well. I like to go into a place um, and really walk around, absorb what's around. And now inevitably you're going to overhear some things. Um, sometimes it's like, oh, okay, I got some inspiration for that. Other times you're just walking away snickering because you've heard something really funny that you probably should not have heard. And I go to something that was very ridiculous. It was a guy, you know, like people that are just yelling into the, the speakerphone. And he was just like, no, the other murder. I was like, Ex excuse me. <laughs> I was like, how does that work? And now that's just been a bit within the family for a while. What is something really funny that you've overheard recently, just in your travels that you're like, I feel like I heard part of this. And I haven't heard the whole thing. This is funny. What is something that's really funny that you've heard recently? I, 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 I you know, I'm thinking about now you, you <laughs> make me think about a, a negative one. I was going to a jam session the other day and I'm walking down the block and this isn't overheard, but kind of walked into and, uh, and the, the venue is on the corner and I'm there and I see a guy I know, a piano player that I know. And he's in the, the cops are in the middle of the street and the lights are on. And he said, hey, Todd. I was like, hey, man, how you doing? He said, oh, yeah, you, I forgot you live on this block. He said, yeah, I just got mugged. And uh, so the cops are here, and they took my phone and my wallet and my Indian food. So um, so that wasn't – I guess I was kind of overhearing, right? I walked into that one, and uh, that kind of ruined my, my day and, uh, and, you know, just to the challenges we're struggling with. It was, um, it was a very kind of real one. So – not not a not a fuzzy happy way to end this interview. Uh, but, uh, it's a real thing, and you know the the part that almost took me out. It's like somebody took my Indian food as well. It's like, look, can they at least get, leave the man with this? Yeah, Indian? leave him with this uh, chana masala. That would be great, please. His, his partner uh, came up and said, "Yeah, I'm more I'm more pissed off about the our Indian food." Than <laughs> I, I would know Indian food's expensive. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that answers your question. That was something I overheard that was crazy. That made me laugh. <laughs> that is great. And see, we, we saved it. We made it work. Um, so so thank you so much for being on this podcast. Um, and I want to invite and encourage you to um, let the folks know where they can check you out, your work, and any of the fine stuff you're doing, website, social media. Um, the floor is yours. Thank you. So the, the best place for my music work is to go to Todd Marcus jazz.com you can get everything there all my social media links and everything um and then for community work go to intersectionofchange.org and you can track all of our our happenings there and our three programs there as well thank you so much um for for that and um 
Yeah. So for the great Todd Marcus, I'm Rob Lee saying that there is art, culture, music, all of that good stuff in and around Baltimore. You just got to look for it. Oh,